And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, high atop the legendary Cood Street Motel 6, it's Gary K. Wolf, Jonathan Strahan, and critic Paul Kincaid on the Cood Street Podcast! Good okay. morning! <laughs> okay, Paul, now, you, now you're officially part of the podcast. Well, welcome, yes. the welcome, well, welcome to the pod. Welcome to the event. I, I feel like just to give a little context in, in saying hi to Paul, because I've been criticized by those near and dear to me that we run this podcast as an insider affair, so we don't explain things. So uh-huh. just for those who, who don't know, Paul is a respected science fiction critic, a former editor of Vector, the critical journal of the British Science Fiction Association. He's written for Actually, the, for, a reviews editor. Ah, a reviews editor, okay. Reviews, yeah. Written for New Scientist, The Times Literary Supplement, The Literary Review, mm-hmm. NYRSF, Foundation. You've had several books published. Most recently, uh, What It Is We Do When We Read Science Fiction, which came out from Beck on publication in 2008. Uh, and you were the chairman, oh, you lucky man, of the uh, Arthur C. Clarke Award for, uh, for 20 years. Uh, no, no, no. Actually, chairman for 11 years. I was involved for 20 years. Wow, that's like a life oh. sentence. And the reason... Yeah, it felt like, like it. <laughs> And the reason we've invited you to talk talk to us today really is because you've written a really wonderful essay review for the Los Angeles Review of Sci- uh, Los Angeles Review about several of the year's best that were published, which, is, which has engendered a lot of conversation, particularly here on the podcast. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure that, that the conversation was entirely throughout its path on tr- on track. And one thing I guess that we we do like to do here is when we touch on something and maybe get a little bit off balance is to actually come back and talk about it seriously and have a chance to engage about it. And that's why we've asked you to be here. So thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. So I guess let me kick off. What led you to write the widening gyre of uh, uh, the 2012 Best of the Year anthologies for the LA Review? they commissioned me to write a review. They initially commissioned me to review five of the year's best anthologies. Uh, In effect, two of them never turned up for review, so I wrote a review of three books. (laughs) Let let me ask this quickly. Which two didn't show up? I can't remember. I think uh, the Hartwell collection and one of which I'd gone from my mind completely. (laughs) I have to say, when it, when it first came, every time I see reviews like this, I have the, or not like this, but reviews of these books, I, I, I and one of mine isn't isn't covered. I, I don't feel slighted. I feel a bit like I dodged a bullet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's possibly true. So so I'm, I'm not wasn't unhappy that my book wasn't here, though I think it's I, entirely appropriate that Gardner's is just because of what it is and what it represents. Mm, yeah. I've I've actually reviewed uh, several best of year collections on a number of occasions over the last few years. Somehow I seem to be the first person that magazines turn to to when they want to do this sort of thing. I just get them. It's it's interesting that in the uh, I I got out the copy of uh, got out my copy of what it is we do when we read science fiction. For which I need to apologize for mangling the title on last week's podcast. I had you confused that, with Raymond Carver. That's fine. I deliberately wrote a, a long, long title. Just but to you see have an how essay many... in that book, which is uh, another which, about ten years ago, I think. Um, yeah. With another roundup of the year's best. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, which doesn't sound. It, it draws similar conclusions, basically, uh, to this mm-hmm. one. 
So I guess yeah. my question is, well, I mean, not really. I mean, you're not talking about a state of exhaustion, but you were talking about, let's say, a fair number of disappointing stories and yes. and some that I think that you said, well, a, a number you said probably didn't deserve to be in a year's best and some that probably didn't deserve to be published. Now, that was 12 yeah. years ago. Yeah. Uh, have, have things changed at all? Well, judging from what I'm saying, no. <laughs> I, I, I have a... I have have a problem with the year's best anthologies. Hello, I'm losing you. Yeah, I'm can here. You hear me? Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I, I lost, hear you. I think yeah. I think I lost the connection for a moment. Uh, uh, I have a problem with the year's best anthologies, and I have done for for many years now. In that they, I think the problem is actually in the title, year's best. I don't necessarily think they are. Mm-hmm. What do you think they are then? I think they're, this would never make a title, but they're a conspectus of where science fiction is at the moment, good and bad. I think that there is some truth in that. I tend to view them as, they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're kind of like an annual. I mean, you're right. To some degree, they are a survey. And, and I think what brought that model in was actually Gardner's books. I think Gardner's I, books fundamentally changed years bests. I have I have one fundamental problem with Gardner's books, which from very early on in the series, they they had the subhead, 250,000 words of fiction yes. or whatever. Yeah. And you got the sense that it was a, a case of never mind the quality, feel the width. I'm not sure that I think that that's exactly what the intention was, though I understand why I'm you sure it wasn't feel it that way. That's the impression I got. Somewhere in one of the introductions, it may have been the first introduction to, to, to uh, the Gardner's Year's Bests, he made a comment to the effect that he saw the book as being like a seed pod that you drop down into the middle of nowhere, and someone coming across would get a sense of the whole field of science fiction. Mm. Now, first of all, I'm not sure, the, the reasons why I'm not sure it entirely succeeds in that mission, but that's part of the reason why it's such a big, big book. Um. The problem with the big, big book model, which has gone on to be, be seen as being a desirable, definitive approach, is that his books initially were very, very successful, and they've continued to be successful over the years. And so, because it's the most commercially successful, because that's what readers want, people follow that model. But yeah. it moves you away from what I would call the Terry Carr model of years best which are they are 12 13 stories they've been picked as being the best of the best and they're really intended i mean i think Carr spent a great deal of time trying to make sure mm -hmm. the stories in his books were in his opinion the best of the year and then yes. you got that type of thing i think there's on one hand a lack of faith that the audience would respond commercially to that book now and that's why these books are done and i think you know it would be seen as a risky venture commercially and i realize that that's not this only explains why they happen, but you know, a lack of faith commercially that you would find an audience for a 250 or 300 page paperback with 12 or 14 stories in it. Uh, I, I, also, I agree look, entirely. Look, Paul. Hmm? Sorry, uh, no, Gary. Well, I, I was going to say I think that, that that's true, and I think that this is driven largely by uh, exigencies of publishing, but I also get the sense from Gardner's, since his, his is the only really massive anthology that's confined to science fiction. I mean, the, the, 
the year's best fantasy and horror, for example, which is what uh, Datlow and Windling did, and mm. Jonathan Yurtz's fantasy and science fiction. So he has a huge remit of only science fiction. And I think he tries to, I think science fiction is so diffuse and so unfocused and has so many sub audiences these days that he's trying to offer something for everyone. There's a little bit of hard science fiction, a little bit of experimental science fiction. Uh, and it's, in some ways, it's like three or four mini anthologies packed into one for three different audi- three or four different audiences. Yeah, that that rings that, that feels true. It's you can pick. Oh, that's his best hard SF. That's his best uh, you know, cyberpunk sure. story or whatever. And you you can you can see this going through. But but I guess you I mean. If you take the books, and this is where they get criticized, and I think it's where part well part of the criticism in your essay is of them is this idea that they they then fail as being a a best an, an award worthy a absolute creme de la creme of the field kind of thing because I mean I read an awful lot of short fiction as you could imagine <laughs> yeah pity <laughs> and I, if if you told me to do a science fiction only book I don't think I could come up with three hundred thousand words a year. No. I just don't believe I could do it. I don't believe no. there's three to me. I don't believe there's three hundred thousand words of the best of the best, um, and that's disappointing. I mean, um, I, I guess the th- thing though, is, rather than talking about just the the form of these books, I, I guess what struck me was, I mean, there were, there were three essential points in the in the essay that that struck me. There was the idea that science fiction had somehow reached as a, a state of exhaustion. Mm-hmm. That, the, that you felt the stories in the book lacked conviction. Yes. And probably the, the, the key point, really, because, I mean, to me, okay, science fiction having reached the state of exhaustion links to the second. The lack of conviction really is, to some degree, maybe that the, the individual story is chosen. But the idea, Also, I think, yeah. from, from some of the writers, I, I think, you know, I'm, get, I'm getting the sense that the writers are not convinced by what they're doing. Yeah, that that they're 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 working on a familiar path. They're they're, they're working on a treadmill. Um, do, do you think that what we're suffering from, and because I, because I take I don't completely agree, but I take a chunk of what you're saying on board. Mm-hmm. Do you think what we're suffering from is the uh, the the output of competence? You know, people who would like to be science fiction writers who are technically competent enough but don't have what what that extra thing that would make them do something particularly special and there's such a volume of this stuff there are so many competent writers out there that they are overwhelming the field somewhat i hadn't thought about it like that but that's a possibility yes yeah yeah i think one of the things that you said that um that was interesting to me, and I'd, and, and I'd like to so know to what extent this extends, you know, beyond the short story, was that, that the writers had more or less lost faith in their own future, that the idea of yeah. a future that somehow represented uh, science fictional thinking, which was fairly easy to identify from most, most of science fiction's commercial history, that, that people just really don't believe in that anymore. This is a sense I've had, actually, for quite a number of years. And I think it starts with this whole idea of uh, the singularity. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the, that sense that the future is 
accelerating way beyond our competence to ex- experience and understand it. And I think that's become, uh, how to put this, an excuse for mm-hmm. not actually trying too hard to make a solidly realized, believable, understandable future. That it, in some way, I don't need to worry about it because there'll be just so much stuff I can just stick it in and it's magic and everything's going to happen. So, so is it that, in effect, I mean, to, to, to pick an example and, and a scapegoat, though it's not this book's res- fault or this author's responsibility, Charles Stross comes along and writes the Accelerando series of stories, yeah. which are a lot of gloss and a lot of style, and they're really cool and sparkly at the time, though, interestingly, mm-hmm. quite a lot less sparkly when you look back at them seven years later, I think. You know, I, I, think haven't, I haven't reread them. I I. St- I rate them actually as one of the the best of Stross's books oh, that I've that I've read. I don't disagree with you at all, but um, I, I guess what strikes me about Acceler- Accelerators as those stories were coming out, they got so much discussion, they were so exciting, and mm. and everybody was taken. The book came out and was almost through no fault of its own a bit anticlimactic. Because it was a basically an agglomeration of the previous books, and it hasn't gone on to be seen yet, at least as a major text. No, you, you know, it's almost like it's being it's been swept away both by Charlie's own productivity and it's keeping attention on other things, and just mm. the rest of the field moving on. But was that an example of rolling out the look and feel of a future without having to map out the kind, you know? The, the kind of future that you're talking about. Uh, let, let's look at this sort of style. Let's let's put it up as being incomprehensible, and now we don't have to engage. There is that sense of if you make it glossy and sharp and bright enough, mm. you don't have to describe it as a lived experience. You don't have to imagine what it's like to live in that future. You're just presenting a load of gosh, wow. Um, that's not exactly, I think, what Charlie was doing in, in that book, yeah. but it comes close. Yeah. So, so is it that, to be glib about it or to, or to be reductive in a description on my behalf, that the quest for eyeball kicks, to use, I think, the Bruce Sterling term, mm-hmm. has um, distracted us from the main, well, one of the main strengths of the field? I think yeah. Uh, let me let me let me add that add to that question, Paul. Uh, is, has science fiction in general just begun to be disappointing? Ooh. <laughs> no. Oh good. Well, there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there's there's been disappointment in science fiction practically for as long as there's been science fiction. Well, yes. I think. What what I'm getting now, increasingly, but it's been going on for 10, 15 years or more, is a greater sense that, you know, the disappointment, as it were, is actually what the field does, what hmm. people expect of it. It's become the norm. Is that because the 
the props, the icons, the whatever of the field have become part of the cultural mainstream. I mean, this is one of the common uh, things that gets mentioned in, in the field all the time. You know, the idea, you know, look, science fiction has won. Science fiction is the mainstream now. Is that in itself a key part of the feeling of lack of conviction, exhaustion, over-familiarity, boredom? It might be. It yeah. might be. I've, I've, one of the reasons I'm, I wrote this essay, and there are other things uh, I hope to write that pursue the same idea, is I'm trying to work it out for myself. Yeah. Um, there's this, there is a sense I have, which I try to express in the essay, but I haven't fully worked out in my own mind why I have that sense, what, uh, is, what it is. Now, is it a sense that you as a reader are exhausted, which you mentioned, you know, the, the idea of reading these books being somewhat exhausting, which I certainly understand? <laughs> it <laughs> certainly is. I mean, if, no, if nothing else, it, it does a walk and break the wrist. Oh, I, I confess, I haven't read one of Gardner's year's bests through it, uh, cover to cover in 10 years. So I admire anybody who has their daunting books that I would look as being to dip. You know, they sort of you dip yeah. you dip into them and keep them like the Encyclopedia Britannica are on the shelf, and you, mm. so you can refer to them rather than read them as as, as things. But um, then there's this you know, is it that one thing that we as three middle aged later middle aged male science fiction readers who've been reading the field, I assume from from similar kind of ages. Is yeah. it that we're simply uh, exhausted with it, tired of it? Because from, from my own perspective, I've found over the last decade that whilst I always find something new and exciting and worthwhile, there's a feeling of, a slight feeling of tiredness, of ennui about the background of the field. That is always a danger. It's a possibility. Yeah. I'm hoping that it's not the case, but it's certainly... You know, a distinct possibility. I, f I find myself constantly reading new books and thinking, well, I've read that before. I've, I've seen that. I've, I've seen that mm. done before. I've seen that. And yet uh, the next generation of critics behind us, the ones who are coming up, are, are saying, oh, this is so great. This is so new. This is so exciting. Um, I'm wondering whether it is actually just over-familiarity. It's a possibility. I get the sense sometimes that, I mean, I'm reading a novel now, which, which I'm losing patience with because of that sort of storm of inventiveness, and it's, it's a very brilliant performance that, uh, that begins to look more and more like a performance. Uh, and that, that, I think, is, uh, I guess, I think part of, the, part of the thing that bothers people like, uh, like at, least, at least like you and me, Paul, is that yeah. there's an obligation to read more stuff than most people uh, read. In other words, if we're reviewing something, you more or less have to plow through it. You can't put it down and pick up something that's a little bit more interesting. Um, and and so there is a sense of, of, of just sort of plowing through sludge sometimes. Yeah. I think you you, you came up with a, a very good word there when you talked about performance. Uh, a mm. lot of these stories I felt were performing science fiction rather than being a science fiction story in, in that they they were they were pulling in the whole theater of science fiction and saying mm -hmm. this is it this, this is what i'm putting on without actually being a new invention being an attempt to do a new thing 
Well, well I was going to say, l- let me ask a question directly that, you know, that follows to that, I think, to, to both of you, and that is, how do you tell the difference between, a, uh, then, a science fiction story and a science fiction, uh, well, and a story that looks like a science fiction story? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you've got instincts sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I, I had an argument with a friend of mine, um, Tansy Rand Roberts, who does a different podcast, Galactic Suburbia, mm-hmm. about a book, Cryoburn, by Lost and Master Bujold. And I don't know if either of you have read the book. No. But, not. Uh, but she described it as hard, a hard science fiction book. And I'm going, it's not hard science fiction to me. I don't think any of that series of Vorkosigan books are hard science fiction. And she's going, but this book's all about the, 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 you know, the mechanics of uh, uterine replicators or about cryogenics or whatever it is. And I was like, no, in that instance, what you've got is you've got a romantic adventure set against a hard science fiction backdrop. It didn't feel to me like it was a fundamentally hard science fiction story, not because it didn't have the what I've called the Asperger-y, Egan-ish feel, but because mm. it wasn't actually engaging with the fundamental mechanics of the concepts in it, I think. You know, the stuff that, that would have made it hard science fiction were secondary to the main story or were just setting. And I think you do see some of that in the, in the field the, at the moment. Now, maybe you always did, but it seems more common to me now that um, we are using, or writers are using, because obviously I'm not writing, mm. writers are using backdrops that, that are science fictional with other kinds of stories on top so that they then get a science fiction story or a science fiction looking story. Or, or simply declare that it's science fiction. I mean, Paul made a point in this essay, which I think mm. I made in my review, the, one of the best stories, because I read a bunch of the year's best, and really one of the very best stories of the year, I thought, was the K.J. Parker story, A Small Price to Pay for Birdsong, mm-hmm. which, as yeah. Paul very rightly points out, doesn't need to be science fiction or fantasy at all. In fact, really isn't science fiction. No, no. Uh, but there was an, another story in there. Uh, can't remember the title now. Which uh, is set in Spain, uh, and yeah, Alexandra Duncan. Okay. Rampion. Okay. Um, it's set in an identifiable moment in Earth history. It's set in an identifiable place on Earth. It has nothing magical, nothing supernatural, nothing alien, nothing strange, nothing that takes it out of the naturalistic. So why is it counted as a fantasy story? And I, I really fail to understand why we, we you know, we do this sometimes. What, why we count them as science fiction, or why we're yeah. willing to yeah. why are we willing to engage with, for want of a better term, these slipstream or peripheral stories in these books and in the field? Um, I mean, I'm not going to complain about engaging with the slipstream or the mainstream or anything else. I mean, I my belief is that there should be a seamless interface between the naturalistic and the fantastic, and you should be able to read from one end of the spectrum to the other without sure. having to change gear. Sure. Uh, it's just that when you categorize books the way they do, I'm finding that the categories that other people are imposing now it, by saying picking it for a particular book or a, a particular magazine surprise me. I'm, I'm losing track of why suddenly one thing is being seen as fantasy when it doesn't look like fantasy. 
Could be my age. No, no, I don't oh. think it is. I mean, I, I, I guess, okay, one thing that we've applauded here a great deal over the last couple of years is a story that Karen Fowler wrote called Pelican Bar. Mm. And Pelican Bar was framed as a science fiction. I mean, Karen has said she believes it's a science fiction story, but it was framed as a science fiction story by being published in a science fiction anthology originally. It was framed, at, or a mixed science fiction and fantasy anthology. It was framed as a science fiction story because it appeared in Best of the Years. I think the mixed science fiction and fantasy ones. Yeah. And I will say that I have felt, and I'm willing to be criticized for this, I, I have felt that when you deliberately put together a book, like as I do, the, the science fiction and fantasy book, it gives you broader spectrums, broader focus, and the ability to pick up these stories that sit in, if you like, overlap zones that are very peripheral at times to the field, mm. but are strong stories that perhaps comment in useful ways on the field without being fundamentally science fictional or fantastical themselves. I'm oh, happy to go oh. along with that. <laughs> Uh, I, I would have to just in sort of defense of, of, of Karen's view of that of science fiction. There are a couple of key lines of dialogue in the story sure. which invite a science fictional reading. And I think that we're, we're into a certain kind of slippery area here. I've started using the term trapdoor genre stories because there, there might be one or two elements in a story that permit or invite a science fiction or fantasy reading, but that don't require it uh, so that it's it's clear that a lot of people read um, the, the, that Karen Joy Fowler story as mm. a mainstream story or possibly as a horror story. But the story itself has a little hinge in it somewhere that you can open the door and say, this is, okay, science fiction um, or not. And the, but, but I think what Paul's talking about are stories that don't even have that trap door in them. Uh, the Parker yeah. story is set in a kind of Mozartian Europe. But there really is a Mozartian Europe, except yeah. it isn't. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I have to sort of, sort of, in a sense, put my hand up and kind of go mea culpa because obviously I re reprinted the same story in my best of the year. Mm. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, and I guess if the question were to be pointed to me, Jonathan, why did you put uh, a small price to pay for Birdsong in the best fantasy part of your year's best science fiction fantasy? I guess the best answer I could say is no, I don't think it comes up with anything new in the, in the fantastic particularly. I don't think it is... F strongly fantastical but it's one of the best fantastic fantasy adventure stories that i read all year you know it's an adventure story with a slight taste of the fantastic to it and it was so much stronger than so many of the other stories that i read that i felt it deserved to be reprinted to a, a you know an audience in the way it is through the, the best of the year what you're talking about is feel yeah yeah it, it's a story that may not in itself in the actual words of the page, be fantasy, but it feels as if it belongs within the field. Yes, I think yeah? so. And I think that's true of a lot of what Parker does. Mm. You know, uh, there's, particularly in, in, the short, in, in, in the short fiction, you come across a lot of stuff that is like that. It's per, you know, It may have a very slight amount of overt fantasy in it. Um, there's also something about it which begins to engage across a different spectrum, and that is between the epic, epic fantasy and other fantasy, if you like. Um, and it's something that's underrepresented in these kind of books, and so it's, it's good to bring that in if you can, I think. Um, but then arguably, I guess, 
is there a different are we as readers looking for something a, a different mission from fantasy than we do from science fiction because one of the things which struck me with your essay and I, and I must say it resonated was the uh, this feeling that science fiction writers have a mission should have a mission to advance the field advance the form push the ideas find something newer more challenging to do and even if it's not everybody that at least there should be people doing it and that those are the stories that you would expect to dominate these books yeah i it's science fiction almost makes a fetish of the new the novum whatever it, it's that sense of of newness seems to have been one of almost a defining characteristic of what we we see in science fiction and yet it it can be one of the most conservative genres there is mm-hmm. and but there is this tension i don't think if you're doing a general survey of the state of the genre at any one time then the conservatism needs to be there if you're trying to pick out what the what the genre does best i'm not sure it does is it a mistake, in your opinion, to represent in the best of the year and to count amongst the best of the year very strong, high-quality examples of something the field already does well? If they were very strong, high-quality examples, I'm not sure it would feel as if it was just ploughing the same thorough. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Let me. Sorry, yes, Gary. Oh, no, I was. Go ahead, Jonathan. I, was, I, I guess I was just going to sort of pull back something we, we were talking about just a little bit before this po- podcast started, and it, it's it's worth throwing in at this point because you, you know, you've sat down, you've written a, this this article for the LA Review. It's come out, mm. and it had a plain. I mean, I feel it had a mission, and the, and the, the mission of it wasn't to criticize, wasn't to be um, negative. It was to raise the debate, you know, the, the the issues, and have the make sure the discussion was had, or to try and see if the discussion had been had. Yeah. Do you feel it's achieving that? Uh, more than I expected. I it was deliberately written as a polemical piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I admit that, and I've said that in in other places. Uh, it was trying to raise the issue what science fiction is actually doing, where it's going, what what it thinks it is at, at the moment. But my expectation of it, which may simply be my, my natural pessimism, was that it would just be ignored, that the field would not pay any attention to it whatsoever. What I thought was the second most likely result is that I would... I would just be swept under by criticism for daring to say anything adverse about uh, the glories of the field. Actually, the response I've had has been rather more positive um, than I expected, and I'm very pleasing. I think, I think, uh, Jonathan, you said uh, earlier before we before we started the field was ready for the discussion. Maybe I just caught the zeitgeist. Well, I, I think one thing you, that you underestimate maybe is that you did cl- sort of climb to the top of a very high hill in the in terms of the LA Review of Books to shout, mm-hmm. to, to shout from that particular hilltop. But then, yes, I but do I, think so. I, I do think this, there's this feeling, whether you are 
sort of the more, what I would see from a distance is the more angry young critic, the Jonathan Macklemonts of the world, etc., who's perhaps disaffected with a lot of what's happening in the core of the field, or somebody like myself, or arguably like Gary, or whoever, uh, who's been in it for longer. There's a feeling that we're, maybe this is a time when we're casting around. I think that's why there's some longer works, particularly that are being so warmly reviewed, you know, uh, accepted. I mean, I think 2312 by Stan Robinson has been as warmly you know, um, responded to as it has because mm. people are looking for things that whatever you see the, f- the faults of that book or not being, it is a fundamentally science fiction book. It's a fundamentally smart book and it's fundamentally trying to do things and ask questions. And I think we're almost relieved and excited to see somebody trying to do that in a really smart kind of a way. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, well, and actually... You... Sorry? Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, I, I was I was going to say that I'm I'm actually finding more effort to do that in the novel than I am in the short story at the moment. I don't know whether that's generally true, because mm-hmm. you know, because obviously nobody can read the entire field, so you know, I'm missing thousands of stories every year. Well, all the rest, so I'm I'm maybe missing the stories that do this, but that's what I feel. Well, that, well, this is why I fear the tidal wave of workshop competence you know mm. and, and, which I think is harder to manifest at novel length I think that the short fiction field is more susceptible to it uh, just, by, just by the nature of short stories the amount of time it takes to write them and get them out into the world whereas to write a, a novel it, it physically takes longer it's, it's more substantial act in that way quite often um, and then the, the books tend to sit much more discreetly, whereas the stories kind of just blur past. And this is, of course, what the years best do. They give you a chance to stop and glance, and that's when you go, well, hang on, that's not what I would expect to see. Mm. So I think, I think there may be another historical sort of thing going on, um, because the uh, the best of the years anthologies, I, if I'm not mistaken, began about 1948 with Blyler and Ditke, and then went on with Judith Merrill. And, and they, were, they were invented at a time when science fiction was a short story medium. Uh, and by and large, the magazines were known to everybody, were read by everybody, and the field moved forward, even during the 50s and 60s, when novels were beginning to appear with some regularity. You had a sense of the field, the engine of the field, still being the magazines and short fiction. That's no longer true. Uh, short fiction no longer is, is, is the cutting edge of the field, and that might be, Paul, why you're sensing that the novels are doing more interesting things than the short fiction is. That's a good point. It Yes, it, it's certainly is the case that when you when you're getting uh discussions about science fiction these days it almost exclusively discussions about novels within mm-hmm. science fiction you know the, apart from occasional writers and then it tends to be the writers like uh keith johnson it's not the short fiction that attracts the attention I wonder, though, if part of that, though, I mean, I agree that it's not the main driving engine of the field at the moment, but is part of that the fact that it's just statistically improbable you've read the same stories because there are so many of them? Probably. (laughs) And there's a reason I ask that, because one of the tasks I perform each year is I am the the record keeper in, in the background while the Locus Recommended Reading List is assembled. And we have 10, 12 people we bring in, and they make recommendations. And it's quite common that there are stories that only receive one nomination that don't go through to the final list. Mm. And it's because, arguably, that person may be the only person who's seen 
uh, that particular story, and so there's no corollary, uh, no, no, there's no other counterbalancing view on the story, and it's hard to get that, you know, that that second view come in. Whereas when it comes to do, do the novel list, everybody's read twenty three twelve because they wanted to. A pile of mm-hmm. people have read. Uh, empty space by by Mike Harrison or whoever else, and so you're going to get mm. a, a set of views on it because there are there are only so many dis, you know, distinct you know books each year. I mean, I will say I, I'm struck between, and I don't know if you both are either. I'm struck between pessimism and optimism in a really kind of almost psycho, you know, sort of schizophrenic kind of a way because. I, I do feel this exhaustion. I, I mean, I see, you know, the new does. If you gave me a stack of, like I say, the Desire Year's Best, My Year's Best, Rich's Year's Best, David's Year's Best, the whole batch of them in a great big stack, I think a little part of me would die inside if I, you told me I had to read them, which is, <laughs> a really, which is a really bad thing, right? On the other hand... Okay, remind me never to ask you to review them. <laughs> on the other hand, um, I keep telling people it's one of the best reading years I've seen in several years. I look at the novels and stuff that have been coming out. It's been so, well, well, no, it, it's just, uh, I think it's an okay year for short fiction. This is not a great year for short fiction. And mm. if you are disappointed with the best of the years for last year, I think mm. there will be a small handful of stories that you'll respond to well from 2012, but I don't think it's going to happen to stand out as a particularly extraordinary year. There are a few really great stories, but you know, Overall, I think it's a, a solidish year. Whereas last, I, th- I thought 2011 was an okay year for novels, but I think just because of historical happenstance, this is a really good year for, for novels. And we're seeing one strong novel or interesting novel after the other go past. Um, and I think that makes it easier to feel optimistic about the field. I think if you look at the field in terms of the novels... Um, Yes, you can feel optimistic because actually the novels are trying new and different things. I mean, yeah. Empty Space may be the third part of a trilogy, but it's still going into areas that you do not find other writers exploring and making a fascinating job of it. Um, mm-hmm. you, know, you get that in the novel. I, so if you're looking at the novel you can feel optimistic. If you're looking at the short story, you tend to feel, oh, well, well, you know, that's familiar. I've seen that before, haven't I? Oh, that's another little variation on a theme. Yes, I've seen that before. Oh, that's nice. And you get that sort of blur response. I, sometimes, and it's very difficult, it's, it's dangerous for me to, to, to have this conversation because it's what I do for, for a <laughs> chunk of the year and it doesn't make me feel very happy. And I th- but... You know, sometimes I look at the books and I think they're done to make, to give someone a good solid read. You know, mm. because there are all these marketing requirements and people wanting name writers and da 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 da. And so uh, I, I can understand that. Um, one thing that I find curious because there's a couple of things measures that are assessed when we when people look at how people feel about the field is what makes into the year's bests and what gets awarded and what ends up on ballots. And there's some mm. very good books that have come out this year that frankly aren't going to make the, 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 the ballots or many of the ballots next year. Do we get too distracted by that? Shouldn't we be more celebrating the fact that these fine books exist and are being read at all rather than worrying about whether they make a Hugo or a Nebula ballot? I mean, I like the awards, but is, is that missing the point? I don't know. If, oh. okay, uh, I, I want to go back to a second to, 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 to the notion that 
that Paul was uh, raising, sure, yeah, which sure. is related to this, of, 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 of recognizing things, of recognizing uh, a, a theme. And I, because I'm always conscious of that when I'm reading uh, a novel, or especially a, a short story anthology, that on, on the one hand, uh, you, you do want to see something new and innovative. On the other hand, uh, you don't want to sound like uh, like an aging jazz aficionado who's uh, you know, a Von Freeman concert and says, oh, he did that lick back in 1963, it's not new. Um, there, there is that sense that uh, you, you don't want to be demanding constant newness. You, you don't want to be demanding the, what, what was it, Oral and Tremaine called thought variant stories, you know, when he was, when he was editing Astounding, a new idea in every issue kind of thing. Um, because I, I'm perfectly happy with, with a well-performed moon colony story, if it's really well, well done. Uh, I don't expect new ideas. On the other hand, there is this sense that if it's not a really extraordinarily well-written story and not a particularly good idea, in other words, if it's a an ordinary science fiction story, that's where I begin to feel disappointment because I'm thinking if people are writing stories that might have appeared in, um, in Analog in 1978, uh, why are they bothering to do that and why am I bothering to read it? <laughs> yeah. And Jonathan, your question about awards and best of year anthologies, I've got a question back. Is there any other branch of literature that finds so many ways to pat itself on the back? No. I mean, look <laughs> no, look I at how many best of year anthologies, how many awards we have within the genre. Why are we so insecure that we need to keep telling ourselves how well we're doing because we were so sure through so much of the evolution of the field that the rest of the world hated us and thought we were uh, some kind of a gutter uh, literature i suspect mm, we're, we're, you know, you know, we're still compensating for that notion that, you know and, and, and it's that way of saying no no we really are fantastic and wonderful and take us seriously um and, I mean, and so, so, some of the awards and whatever else seem reasonable. And this is a really strange historical time anyway compared to the rest of the field. I mean, let's, let's say we draw a nice, neat line around, I'm going to say about 2000. Uh, prior to, in fact, about 19, no, let's go 1990. Prior to 1990, you have, what, two or three years best at a time, maybe? Your car, mm. Walheim. That, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, sometimes less, but you're usually getting, and they're not big books. And this, this, is, no. this is through periods when the short story really is the creative driver in the field. Mm-hmm. And yep. small number of awards. Round about that point, I mean, uh, Terry Carr very sadly died in the, in the mid-1980s. D- Don Walheim passed away a little bit later. Um, Gardner comes in, does his big year's best. And the awards proliferate as well. You know, mm. and suddenly it's not just the Nebula and Hugo. It's like everybody has to have one. I think it's somewhere around there. The Clark Award itself would have taken off, and I'm not casting any aspersion on it at all. But yeah, you know, it's part of that award proliferation, just as yeah. you know the Sturgeon Award and the the the, the second John Campbell Award, and mm. da 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 da. Why? I don't know. Is it? It may be the outcome I, growth. Of, hmm? Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's not. Also, it's not directly related to that sense of being in a ghetto because the awards and the best of year anthologies proliferate just at the time when science fiction is starting to get more widely accepted well actually that's an interesting thing and this is just a thought i haven't thought it through it's not a sort of a a pronouncement jonathan um but is it that 
it's a way creating bests of the year is a strange way of marketing to science fiction to the rest of the world that it's not actually particularly aimed as much as we think at us and our perception of the best but it's a way of saying well hang on if you don't really read science fiction or if you're interested or you watched star wars or whatever else here's the you know the best the most palatable the obvious you don't have to go off and look at the rest of the field here's a nice little synopsis you can synopsized version you can read the few award books you can read a hugo book you can read a nebula book you can read uh dark gardener's best of the year and you've dabbled and that's it and you can move on to something else well it's possible that's that not the makes sense thing. It, it does. I mean, I hadn't really thought of it that way particularly, but as you say, if, it, if it's that critical, if, if there is an actual critical period where we've moved through, the you know, broad speakingly on a broader cultural level, we've moved through Star Wars and we've moved through Close Encounters of the Third Kind, been through Star Trek, blah, 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 blah. Science, the, the look and feel of science fiction is out there in the world at large. Well, then these are the same things. And speaking of somebody who doesn't read much mainstream literature as much as I'd like, I remember a time in my life when I would go and pick up the best American short stories volume and the best American essays volumes because they were the, exactly that. They were the, oh, here's the best of that mainstream stuff. I don't have to go off and investigate it. It's laid up for me in a nice sort of credible-looking package. I don't think that science fiction is years of best actually work that way, and I, I say it because of having tried to use them in classes with my students and specifically gardens. I would say that in um, if you were to show one of Gardner's anthologies to a, a, a group of non-science fiction readers, as I did, probably a, probably maybe a third of the stories would even be comprehensible to many of these readers. Um, my students just bounced off the, the Charlie Strauss. Lobsters was one of the ones that, as a matter of fact, was in one of these anthologies. Uh, in some ways, it may alienate from people's, uh, it may alienate non-readers from science fiction as much as it draws them in. Uh, they might read stories and simply come up with a reaction I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what these words mean. I don't know what the assumptions are behind the story. I don't even know when it's supposed to be taking place. And just back off because somebody who's raised up, who thinks, somebody who thinks of science fiction as Star Wars and Close Encounters is going to be pretty alienated by what, what's being written in the field these days. Yeah. I, I was actually going to, thinking if, if Jonathan's proposal was actually hell water maybe that explains the conservative nature of so much of what we're we're reading because that's the stuff that the outside people recognize as science fiction you know that's that mm -hmm. is the star wars and the star trek and uh the close encounters and uh all the rest of it maybe it's responding to that demand by producing more and more of the same I mean, I have to say, I'm sure all of the best of the year editors would say they've not consciously done that. Oh, sure. I mean, I would myself. I've certainly not deliberately done that, but I don't know that that's not what we incidentally have done. Let me ask another attached question to that, I guess. If you roll the best of the years and the awards into a nominal critical apparatus around science fiction, a, comment a commentariat, is that in need of renovation and repair? You know, is it time to pull, you know, tear down how we look at, talk about, and award and recognize the field and rethink it a little bit to make it more relevant? I mean, allowing that the rest of the world's going to ignore what we say, but is there a need for it? Relevant to whom? 
<laughs> well, I guess, well, I guess relevant to the implied mission, that, or not the, the stated mission in your essay uh, about what's about what science fiction is, what it's supposed to be there for, and um, where it's going. I mean, this, this, this. If 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 you want the field, and by you I don't mean nominally you yourself, but if you want a, the field to be driving forward, evolving, and re- remaining exciting and relevant and interesting, is that commentary and response part of part of the whetstone it sharpens itself against and if it is does that then need to be fixed to help it do that better the other way of looking at that is does the field want to be innovative and sharp and acute and novel i think so i think a few people do i think yeah i think there are people how few not many I don't think. I mean, I hate to say it, but that, that's my impression. I, I'm not right just because I'm saying it, but uh, mm. I, I have that impression. I mean, I, there's some people who I think by the nature that they live and breathe can't help not be that. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, t- t- you know Mike Harrison not being that, right? He's always, no. you know, that, that, that's the nature of the, of the man. Uh, but I think that Robert Sawyer is perfectly happy doing what he does. And hey, more power to him if he's entertaining people. That's fine. I think you know. I I don't get the impression. Hang on. I I don't get the impression that there's a lot of writers out there who really want to push science fiction on science fiction terms. There are other things they want to do with it. They want to talk about peripheral things, uh, secondary things, other things. But science fiction, for science fiction's purpose, is, is it's almost like there's more people taking science fiction up as a tool and using it for other purposes. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing. Well, I think we're seeing a, a number of writers uh, coming into the field. And this is where short fiction may be different, because ironically, uh, you're right, Jonathan, there is the year's best American short stories. But that's virtually the only annual, uh, well, they're, they're the year's best series. Ironically, science fiction is such a huge part of the short fiction market now. I mean, if you're writing short stories and want to sell them to mainstream publications, you're going to sell them to tiny zines with circulations of two or three hundred or online zines. Science fiction, short fiction, actually probably has a larger readership than almost any other short fiction we see, except for what appears in Playboy and the New Yorker. So it's it's, it's a very attractive field, and I think that the venues have attracted a number of writers, and you mentioned Mike Harrison, but I can think of writers who don't see themselves as pushing the area the borders of science fiction they don't necessarily begin by thinking themselves as genre writers at all i'm thinking of people like kelly link and and, and mary rickard but who seem mm-hmm. to find home here and what they do may be a very quirky individual uh, idiosyncratic vision uh, but it's not a, it's not a vision that sees i'm i'm inside the project of science fiction and i'm pushing at the boundaries yeah. it's more like i am a very idiosyncratic writer and this world welcomes me and publishes my fiction and recognizes me for it. Sure. I mean, one thing yeah. I think... That, sorry, you were going to say something, Paul? No, no, I, I was oh, just okay. agreeing with uh, you. Uh, I was going to say, one thing I think that's, that's perhaps more pernicious you know, in, in this light is that I think there's probably a, a, a reasonable proportion of published short story writers who are sort of going... Well, I've got a story, and I'd I'd like a market for it, and I don't have an obvious market for it. And if I just add a little bit of that, then they'll buy it, you know. And so it's it's just getting a story published rather than doing anything much with the field. I guess the problem comes, I would imagine you would say, and I actually would tend to agree with you, is when that then ends up amongst the best of the year. 
That's the real it, problem, it, isn't it? Yeah. I had a line somewhere in the review. You know, a, a, a spaceship taking off in the background doesn't necessarily make a story science fiction. <laughs> True. I, I would have to agree. There was it's, a famous I, I, example. Oh, wasn't sorry, carry on. There, 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 was, there was a famous, much-cited example by, I think the writer's name was Chester Geyer, who had been unable to sell a story to a Western magazine, so he simply changed horses to rocket ships or something and sold it to a science fiction magazine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I'm sure, I mean, and anybody who's gone back and read fiction from, you know, the science fiction from that period of time in any depth will tell you there's enormous numbers of those sort of unremarkable stories and we just see the sort of few oh, yeah. po- the, the polished jewels that remain. Yeah. The same thing will happen, you know, should mm. anybody attempt the appallingly complex task of c- coming back and reading the 10,000 stories published in a given year to try and work out where the actual jewels were if they weren't the ones that are gathered up in these books. I think the problem is mm-hmm. not so much that, you know, there's obviously a whole load of rubbish at any mm-hmm. point in the whole history of science fiction. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. And, the, you know, the ones that stand out, the ones that we return to, are, are a vanishingly small proportion of what was being published. The problem at the moment is that the ones that stand out at the m- now are the ones that appear in the best of year anthologies, the mm. ones that appear on the, the award ballots. Um, and they're not necessarily being the ones that are the sort of innovative or original, fresh works that survive from the earlier years. Yeah. I think that, isn't, isn't some of that the nature of Awards ballots, for example, that you're going to, the Hugo, for example, is um, may get few votes in certain categories like you know, nonfiction work, but in, in short story mm. in the categories, it's 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 a popular vote, and the popular vote tends toward the median, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Which is why the idea that the awards and the best of year actually formulate a canon. Is possibly a dangerous idea. I, I could see that it is. It, it's one that I, that sits uncomfortably with me, I must say, mm. um, because whilst everybody's doing the best job they can, I mean, I think that people running the various awards are doing it from the best intentions and doing their best effort. You're making their best effort. And well, I know. Let me say, from you know, having done it, yes, that's yeah, definitely yeah, the case. Yeah. And I think that people compiling the best of the years, having spoken to you know my colleagues and having done it myself, are putting a lot of work in and trying to do the best they can. Whether we're achieving it or not, I guess, is another question. Um, and the impact of not doing so, you know, um, is interesting. I, I, there is something that occurred to me that. Are we, as three people who actually aren't that, I don't think of that different a set of views on this particularly, are we valuing a particular position over others? And by that I mean, I would tend to value this idea of science fiction as a literature moving forward highly. I think there are many other readers and commentators who might not. And are we being, I don't know, um arrogant in doing so 
are we overlooking that there are other things the field can do that are that are worthwhile that aren't what we want it to be doing and that we need to allow those to be valued as well um speaking purely for myself one of the things that brought me into science fiction is that i value literature that excites me and engages me intellectually Hmm. and that's what i found in science fiction i want that sense that my mind is being challenged by what I read and I still tend to value most highly the books that I find most challenging yes I think that probably that is not a popular view doesn't necessarily mean it's a wrong view but I don't think it's a popular view well I think that's true and uh, probably of general fiction readers as well. I mean, there, there are. I mean, if you actually look at the bestseller list, what the popular view is uh, to have uh, more more shades of grey and John uh, mm. Grisham and, and, and more shades. But that doesn't mean that that uh, you know uh, something that something could cross the line. Like maybe the new Michael Chabon novel is getting wonderful reviews. He's a very interesting writer. There. Are, very interesting <clears throat> writers out there like David Foster Wallace that are very challenging. So I think both things happen in throughout literature. It's not it's not confined to science fiction. Hmm. Yes, but it's what we laud. Well, it's yeah, what we praise. It, yeah, and, and we're 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 sort of in this pool together with all the other uh, science fiction readers. Many of whom mm. want different things, which is why I um, the. Which is why I always have to make a distinction between the sh- best short fiction of the year and, and the possibly best novels of the year, because uh, there aren't, there's not really, and this is where I'm probably disagreeing a little bit with you, Paul, because I know there are a lot of stories that uh, simply don't belong in the year's best, and as you said, probably yeah. some that don't deserve to be published. But it, you, you very seldom will run across a purely commercial blockbuster short story in the way that you will run across a, a best-selling novel because there's no there's, there's no reason to write a story that's that frankly commercial I don't think that purely commercial short story um, exists in the way it might have at, at one point I'm not sure I'm talking it's, I'm not sure I'm talking about a purely commercial short story I think I am talking about a, a purely science fiction story in in the sense of a story that fits very comfortably and safely within perceived bounds of science mm. fiction and intentionally sits there. What Not necessarily the same as commercial. No, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I suppose yeah. there are... Um, well, I suppose there are a lot of stories. One of the things that's been commented on by many of us over the years is how seldom analog shows up in year's best anthologies. And... and Fairly infrequently on um, on awards ballots, and yet it's arguably the most successful. It remains arguably the most successful science fiction print magazine in the world. Mm. In the English language. Well, in the English language, yes. We don't see much else, do we? <laughs> wow. Which I think is a fault of a, of a genre, not. You know, mm. I, I think we should be seeing more from from other languages. Well, yes, it would be nice if, if there was a simpler mechanism for that ha- to happen, and hopefully over yeah. time that will evolve, because I do think there is a need to recognize and to understand and to in- include a broader range of voices. Let me ask you this, I guess, ab- about the essay. 
as we come towards, I guess, the, the end of an hour. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> is there a call to arms in there? Should there be? Probably there should be. Whether there is or not is, I think, in the eyes of the beholder. Well, then, what what is the call to arms you might append to it? I think maybe we should seriously look at what we want from science fiction. If the safe option is what people genuinely want, then fine, fair enough. But if we want genuinely challenging, difficult, innovative, or whatever adjective you want to apply, if you want fiction that does something different, then how do, how do we encourage that? Fair enough. I can see that. I mean, listening to you say that, I'm sorry, so I'm thinking because I'm a, I am a different kind of a reader to you to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. I, I still value value. Well, I value both. I want to be able to read, to, to use the t- today's example, I want to be able to read Empty Space by Mike Harrison, which yeah. is a challenging, sharp, prickly, interesting book. Yeah. But I'm also quite happy to read, um, a. St- a straight adventure science fiction novel and enjoy it on a given day for for the fun of it and not be challenged at all. There are times when that's what I want in my blend of reading. I want a range of it. I want to preserve and advance the that that challenging territory, but I also don't want it to be all of what I read. And mm. I mean, I'm, I'm quite happy to you know so go away and read, let's say a Dorothy Sayers or a Marjorie Allingham uh, crime novel. Not because I want to be challenged so much as because I just enjoy the fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yes, I'm quite happy with that. What I'm thinking about is always what we then laud, what sure. we then praise as being where the genre needs to be, what the genre needs yes. to do. Well, if I understand, I mean, I, I think I, I sympathize with that feeling. I I don't know that it can become a prescription for writing or not writing certain stories. The feeling that the science fiction field uh, isn't controversial. It's not. It's not upsetting people. It's there's not a sense of upheaval in it the way there might have been um, in, in in the 60s and 70s. I mean, the the the, the term exhaustion uh, was was thrown around a lot in the 60s. John Barth wrote an essay called "The Literature of Exhaustion." Yes. He was talking about mainstream fiction. Uh, I think some yeah. of Moorcock's early editorials in New Worlds were saying that science fiction of the late 50s had exhausted itself and was turning in on itself, and he wanted to uh, to shake that up, although very cleverly, New Worlds continued to publish some of those very traditional science fiction stories. Along. <laughs> just, I, I think the John Barth essay was at the back of my mind when I started talking about exhaustion. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't mean it precisely. I didn't mean it precisely in the way that Barth does but that thought was there at the back of my mind I think but, uh, yeah and, and I think that what comes across as, as being a, a very amenable point to me is that there seems to be a sense of an, a, maybe not so much uh, exhaustion but a, a need for some kind of renewal a need for something uh, that will create that, that sort of energy uh, are there any controversial stories or books coming out in science fiction at all these days or are they all more or less safe as you imply in the essay and i think that's a good question to ask i don't know what the answer is <laughs> not necessarily <laughs> i i can i can see books that have been controversial that have 
um, you know, things like The Islanders by Christopher Priest last year, mm-hmm. which won one or two awards and was very noticeably omitted from other shortlists. Mm-hmm. Um, some people see that, I think, would probably see that as a controversial book. Other people, myself included, would just think it's a very, very good book. Mm. So I'm well, not so sure how to... we judge what's controversial. Right. Well, I mean, I don't think we, I don't think we can judge what's controversial if, if, if there's a, a great deal of disagreement about a book. If something like mm. that gets discussed. What surprised me about the, the Islanders in particular was that it didn't get more discussion because there were some people who clearly did not like it uh, yeah. as much as apparently you and I did. Uh, mm. But isn't that but, isn't that a different mechanism? Isn't that the mechanism by which a book gets to be read at all? Um, I mean, you know, the Islanders comes out from Golans, and so it reaches a particular focused audience, and there's discussion there. But not elsewhere. The Islanders didn't get discussed in the United States much at all because it wasn't read much there. That no. kind of a thing. I mean, there are other yeah. artifacts at play. <clears throat> Even though you can argue that now, of any time in the history of our field, there's less excuse for it because it's not hard to get those books. I mean, when I was growing up getting, you know, reading science fiction, it was hard to get various books. You, would, you couldn't come across them. Mm. Now yeah. you could if you're so motivated. Mm-hmm. Is there also because I mean I think there are different things. I mean I, I do think the way we recognize things needs to be overhauled. <clears throat> I do think we need to value novel not novelty, but um innovation in the field. Mm. But do we also need to call for a higher level of competence? And by that I mean if what I want some of the time is um entertaining space adventure, right? Does it need to be done at a higher level anyway? Are we failing to improve with what we did moderately well before? Mm. I, th- I think there's a failure if we write a space opera that could have been as easily written in 1950 as now. Uh that isn't necessarily a failure. But if that story is then lauded as being the best thing that the genre is doing in the year, then there's a failure somewhere. So I think the the, the failure is not in, in what is being written so much as how what is being written is being appraised and considered. Is there also a, a failure to understand the mechanisms by which we laud things? And I guess what I mean by that is... I think it's fair to call out best of the year editors and say your judgments are askew, you're not valuing certain things. I think it's fair to go to a writer's association and say you seem to be uh, presenting your most prestigious award to badly written fiction. But if you go to the Hugos and say to them you're recognizing the wrong thing, are you missing the point because it's simply a popularity poll? I mean, I like the Hugos and all that kind of thing, I value them, but that's what it is, you know, I mean, Frankly, so are, is, are the Hugo's wrong to say that Leviathan's Wake by Daniel Abraham and uh, Ty Frank uh, is one of the best books of the year when it's a straight populist poll? Are people missing the point when they get angry about that sort of thing? I don't think they're missing the point. I don't think you want you 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 necessarily want to go and say to the Hugo voters you got it wrong because. I tend to see 
the awards anyway as being an excuse for the debate, a starting mm -hmm. point for the debate, which, in a sense, the actual final vote is uh, the aftermath. Mm -hmm. It's it's not what the thing is about. Um, so I don't think you, you necessarily want to go and say to the voters, you know, that book should never have been included. But you, you can have the argument outside saying, you know, what idiots do want to include that book? And again, I think that's, uh, yeah, it, it is a popular vote. And, and in a sense, um, like like any popular vote, there's really no point in in gainsaying someone's judgment because it's 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 not someone's judgment. As opposed mm. to a best of the year anthology where you do have one editor taking responsibility sure. for claiming that these stories are the best. Yes. Indeed. Huh. An interesting time. By the way, one of the <laughs> anthologies, uh, Paul, that you included, which and I think you recognize this also, that's just always struck me as an oddball uh, member of this set was the Nebula anthologies, which are never completely uncontrolled yes. for editor. And no. always awkward bits of you have to have representatives of the winning things in them and you can uh, so so that's neither a year's best nor not a year's best and until recently it's been a different year from all the others anyway well it's it still is it's still always about a year behind uh, still. i i think the nebulous the nebulous puzzle me i never fully understand the nebulous i'm you know there was always that bit about you know, the way the voting was rigged early mm -hmm. on. Um, and some of the decisions made, just, I, you know, that Leviathan whom thou has made, was that really the best novella written in that particular year? Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I would share your puzzle, but I mean, I, I look back at the early Nebula anthologies that um, Damon Knight put together, mm. and, and they are filled with terrific fiction. They really are. They are, yes. And it it seems as though when SFWA was in its early stages, and I've not researched this in detail, this is just my observation, it was much closer to that essential mission. Now, from a distance outside looking in, it looks a little bit like a clubhouse gone awry. You know, how can it be that some of these things get recognized? I mean, you're saying that sort of rather than criticizing a ballot or criticizing a winner, you should perhaps step back and have have you know not not say you got it wrong but have the discussion but there are times when you look at them and you think you did just get it wrong uh, yeah. I, mean, I mean i agree with you rather wholeheartedly about the um about that particular story just as i would agree with you if you were to walk over to the world fantasy awards and ask some pretty serious questions about now what was the winner back in uh 2000 i think it was it was a Fairly generic fantasy. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Thraxus by Martin Scott. Mm. Oh yes, which was yes. a pretty diabolical book, and they just got it wrong. Uh, I mean, that's mm. arrogant and it's everything else. But I looked at me going, it, or, or no, let me let me rephrase that to be fair, because I mean, I, I don't want to rant too much, but they made a set of decisions that were not comprehensible to me, at least, in presenting that award. You know, they valued something that I couldn't see, and I read the book immediately because it was a time when I was reading, 
you know, every, every award winner and award nominee, I would try and read the mm. entire ballot you know, when it came out. And I found it a mystifying selection. The um, Eric James Stone novelette you're talking about, novelette, I, yeah. I find absolutely impossible to comprehend. And I, you know, I do sit there and I do read the stories every year. I have for the last 10 years or so. Yeah. And I do have this theory that if you line all the year's best editors up, and in fact, were you to go out and find any moderately knowledgeable science fiction and fantasy reader of any gender, age, distribution, whatever else, and give make them sit down and read for a year the entirety of the field, they would all come up with the same top 300 stories, pretty much. That's yeah. my feeling. I just think they would never agree on the same top 30 stories. There are stories that creep onto some of these ballots at times, and the nebula is particularly susceptible, and sometimes you know, the small-scale jury to watch can be susceptible, where mm. they wouldn't make the top 300. And I've sat there looking at them going, I have no idea how that's happened. Yeah. Yeah. There are plenty of awards where that has happened. I will say, in fairness to awards, though, if you take all of the books shortlisted, of the awards generally over the years you will find omissions that are incomprehensible mm. in retrospect and you will find selections that are incomprehensible mm -hmm. in retrospect but you will also find a, in general a fairly good view of where the genre is over the years um, it, uh, not necessarily a canon but a general a snapshot of, of the genre over the years I, I think if you take them in general rather than specifics that's that's how they work it's interesting you say that because for various reasons one thing i looked at quite closely uh was the locus award itself mm -hmm. and if you ignore the locus award as an award and you yeah. look at the locus award as a poll and if you read all the way down the poll in every category every year, you do see a really interesting portrait of the field emerge. You yeah. do see new trends evolving and being recognized. You do see an array of, of works coming to the awareness of that particular readership. And I'm well aware that the Locus voting audience is a small subset of the field at large and it's a particular yeah. demographic mm -hmm. and it excludes all sorts of other things that said it's a consistently available metric to look at to at least look at that slice of the picture and you do and i think if there were a way to take all of the things that are entered into mark kelly's science fiction awards database and merge them on an annual basis with some magical weighting to give you some kind of an idea, you would get a really clear picture of what the field valued at any one time. Yes. You wouldn't... That, uh, yeah. That's and, a good way of putting um, it, actually. Sorry, Gary. No, go, go ahead. Finish. I was going to say, that's a good way of putting it. It's what the field values, it's not necessarily what is good. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, pretty I, much the same, yeah, same point I was going to make, I guess, that you, you get a sense of history. Uh, because... Um, I don't, I mean, one of the things I do like about reading year's best anthologies is that I don't have to read a lot of short fiction. I don't have time to read a lot of short fiction. Mm. And I tend to view them as, as more like we, we started out this discussion, more like annual reports than actual best of anthologies. Because I will read a story in, in all of them, including yours, Jonathan, and I will think, if this is the best 
With, with somebody put out an anthology of the mediocre science fiction. I mean, what? Really? Seriously? I would like to see somebody at least give me a list of just mediocre middle grade science fiction of the year to to see if that's if, if that's actually what the state of the field looks like. You have no idea what pain we're saving you from. Mm-hmm. I, I, I sometimes get an impression. I, I'm enormously grateful. I mean, sorry. Yes, Paul. Sorry. I was going to say I sometimes get an impression. Looking not just at the contents of the anthology, of the best of year anthologies, but the, the recommended reading lists that are included with them as well. But mm-hmm. as long as you know how to put a full stop at the end of the story, you're <laughs> going to get included in an in the anthology somewhere. That, that, I don't know if that's entirely true, but I, I do think. I mean, I've I've struggled with the, the recommended reading list. I think I put one in one of my books once and never since. Um. <laughs> And it's because I feel like it's attempt to name check that entire top three hundred stories I mentioned. Yeah, yeah. And, and sometimes, for, I mean, I remember at a particularly naive period in my time in my life when I was young, under socialized and had no friends, I would get Gardner Dozois' Year's Best, and I would read the Year's Best, and I read the first certainly five or six cover to cover, and then I'd go to the recommended reading list, and the same with the Datlow Windling just when it first emerged, and I would then go through the other stories by people I liked trying to track out the other ones that were good enough, almost good enough to get in. And sometimes it was a bit mystifying. And then what I found was, as people became more aware of Australian science fiction, I'd also gotten to the point where I was editing a best of the year in Australia, and I would see the Australian stories making it onto those lists. I'm going, but that's utter tripe, and that's utter tripe, and that's utter tripe. <laughs> They're just being nice now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, which mm. is a very strange thing to encounter. And, and so th- they're... They're strange tools, those recommended reading lists. I'm not sure they actually do yeah. what... I'm not sure, necessarily, and believe me, I've not talked to the, the other editors about this. They have a, a, no doubt a different view. I'm not sure they're strictly recommended reading. Yeah. I think it's... The name-checking... I've always thought about those in, in terms of the same terms that I think of my grandchildren getting uh, at the end of their uh, soccer season, at the end of their football season, and everybody in the league gets a trophy. Everybody gets something. Uh, the, the champions get a big mm-hmm. trophy, everybody else gets a little trophy, and I always thought that those recommended reading lists are the little trophies for the kids whose whose teams actually sucked. <laughs> Participation awards. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, I mean, I was, always, I've always, I was always desperately bemused by the writers who would keep careful track. Mm. I didn't. I didn't quite get it. You know, it's like, well, I was named. I, I was. Re- I made the recommended reading list for the '96, the '97, and the '98 book, and you're going, but you never made the book. Yeah. You know, and that's only one metric anyway. So, uh. some writer a couple of years ago, uh, and you, you both might remember who it is, put together a, a collection of his award-nominated stories, none of which had won. Was that? It was simply Michael Burston. Michael Burston did that. Yes, that's who it was. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was the oddest idea for a, for a collection. Well, it's one of those things that's all, that's very readily t- you know, turned on its head is the problem. It's, it's, it's immediately, here are all the stories I've ever had that lost an award. Mm. Yes, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just like, I guess you're both aware of io9.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And their, their tagline is, you know, we come from the future, right? Mm. Well, surely the inverse of that is we live in the past. Yes. Which is kind of like not quite so shiny sounding, even though I love io9 and the people who run it. But so you always have to be careful about those things. Since since we are 
over our hour, and since we are rambling or digressing a little bit, yes. let me sort of try and draw this to some kind of a conclusion. Since we started, Paul, with you nominally on top of a, 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 a the hill that is the LA Review of Books, yes. shouting to the field at large, saying, "Hey, I don't know about what, what's happening. It's not all that con- you know. It's not not all that convincing right now." Mm. When you read the best of the field today, are you still optimistic about it? When I read some examples of the field today, I am very, very optimistic. I am. I take great pleasure in the fact that as a critic and the fact I've been writing about the field since, what, 1970s, I can still be surprised and delighted by things I read. So there are, there are certainly things being written today that I think are wonderful and praiseworthy and worth celebrating. But when I think about the field as a whole, ah, I begin to tumble from that euphoria fairly quickly. Is the field as a construct growing old? That's an interesting thought. It may be. Yeah. Is it time to, to, to sw- sw- if it's even remotely possible, to sweep it aside and find some other way of parsing what's happening and what we're reading? Maybe we should go for the old thing of just mixing the mainstream and, and the fantastic together and just saying it's all literature and not start making distinctions. Which it is, though. Readers seem to resi- you know, resist that. I don't know if you came along and said yeah. to them, you know, here is Telegraph uh, Telegraph Avenue by Michael Chabon, widely mm. praised, though not by my friend James Bradley, who didn't like it very much. Yeah. Or... Uh, I'm looking forward to reading You know, I was so disappointed. This is why I don't read book reviews as much as I used to. Because if there's a book I really, really want to read, I don't want to read a bad review of it first. (laughs) And, you know, James read Telegraph Avenue. He's going, that was really disappointing. No, I've been waiting for that book for a year. You're kidding me. It's just like I have... um, I'm I'm now totally digressing. I'll pull back. I've just started reading um, The Hydrogen Sonata by Ian M. Banks. Which is a oh, title yeah. I love. It's a title I love, right? And I'm about four, title. got four chapters into it, and it's moderately interesting so far. But I can't help be hounded by the thought that, to me, his best culture novel, The Player of Games, is half the length of this book. Mm. And that kind of fills me with a little bit of trepidation as well, you know? So it's like. But. Yeah. I'm glad there's an element of optimism. And for you, Gary, <laughs> are you optimistic or not? Um, I, I, I think I am. I, um, I read Empty Space. Well, we come back to Mike Harrison. I read Empty Space mm. and thought there are people, you know, in my generation who can do things that I hadn't expected before, and uh, and I could be astounded by that. I can be astounded by a few short stories. Uh, I don't think. I, I guess the problem in terms of being optimistic about the field is whether there is a field there anymore. There's there's a core certainly. There's a core of science fiction readers, but this business of merging the mainstream is really happening, and it's very difficult to be optimistic or pessimistic about such a diffuse, uh, you know, collection of books and stories. I was thinking about yeah. it while you were both explaining that, and I think I know what I am. I'm hopeful, is what I am. I'm mm. hopeful for the mm. field. 
I love reading it. I think there's still a strong array of stuff being published. Yes, there are bibs and you know, there's, lo there's lots that ro that's that's wrong, but there's a lot, there's still a good chunk that's right. I, I, as, as the you know that yeah. being hopeful implies that you're not confident. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm not confident about confidence either. Um, <laughs> No, I, I don't, okay. I don't know that I am, but I'm, I'm willing to sort of devote an awful lot of my time one way or another to it. So, you know, I'm yeah. still swinging away with with, with some degree of, pa of, of passion and intensity, mm. as I think all three of us are. Yeah. But one final little thing, because I'm tempted to as a, as a postscript to this, and we've tagged a little bit. If someone was going to read the essay, The Widening Guy, and then came back and said, well, what should I read and let's keep it simple to novels at the moment, that's just come out of late that would give me an idea of what it is that you are hopeful, hoping for and value, what would you suggest they look at? We've mentioned it two or three times already, mm. Empty Space, Mike mm. Harrison. I mean, it, it just, you know, it takes core elements of science fiction and does something fresh and original and challenging with them and it makes you think about the things you've seen in the past and the things you've accepted as being standard it makes you think about them anew i would agree let me ask you this are you disappointed that it won't make get on the hugo and nebula ballot i'd be astounded if it did that that's what i'm saying i'm, I'm saying out of the yeah. box i don't believe it yeah. will no it will no i believe no, it belongs on no those, way but yeah 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 i mean uh, you know my, my feeling is that you know it if, if not necessarily winning every award going, it should certainly be in, you know, challenging for every award yeah. going. But it's not going to get them. It might get one or two. Yeah. Well, well, the Clark Award or something. I would think it would probably get. Yeah, although given the Clark Awards recent uh, last years. <laughs> well, it also suffers. It suffers from that, you know, dual year publication. It'll be out in next April, I think, in in the states from from Nightshade. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's always awkward, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it? Okay. We can't pin the future of the field on one Mike Harrison book every six years mm -hmm. or so. That's not going to work out. So, so I guess <laughs> <laughs> I guess we're going to have to have to work on, on on this as a call to arms. But yeah. In, in the interim, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today, Paul. It's been a it's very enjoyable conversation. Mm. It's Thank been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And as always, Gary, a joy talking to you. And we'll talk, talk, talk to you next week. And if you haven't read Paul's essay, you can get it at the LA Review of Books.org. Uh, just search on Widening Geyer would be the easiest way, I suspect. Mm -hmm. And so, now as ever, this is the Mullers of Cood Street signing off. Oh, okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Good. Thank Goodbye. you. Bye.